Two and a Half Admins, episode 40. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And let's do some news first. The first is that Microsoft has put Windows 10X on the back burner. Yeah, so Windows 10X was going to be their special version of Windows for dual screen devices. Not meaning dual monitor, but like these weird tablets that had two screens and stuff. I think mainly because those type of devices didn't really catch on. There's not a huge demand for a different user interface that makes sense on these weird kind of split screen devices. Yeah, that confused me really badly when people first started talking about 10X. It was like this special version of Windows for dual screen devices. I'm like, every device I've used Windows on for the last 10 years plus has been a dual screen device. What are you talking about? But the idea was that for the most part, you would have a virtual keyboard on, uh, you know, one screen of your hinged two screen device. But I never saw the attraction of that. I'm like, you know, if I'm going to have a device that's hinged and half of it is keyboard and half of it is screen, I'd rather just have a real keyboard, right? Yeah, exactly. We saw with Windows 8 what happens when they try to revamp the UI. Everybody hates it because as far as I know, the only reason anybody ever uses Windows is because it's what you know how to do. <laughs> And if you just change everything, it it defeats half the point. Yes and no. I would argue that the reason everybody still uses Windows is because of the ecosystem. It has very little to do with, you know, Microsoft's own software stack or even the interface. But, yeah, that that doesn't change the fact that when you go changing a traditional desktop to, uh, you know, that that metro abomination (laughs) with Windows 8, it does not make the user base happy. Uh, Honestly, it doesn't even make the 20-year-old users happy, let alone the boomers. And uh, Windows has more of those than than, uh, just about anybody else, I guess. But uh, 10X went on the back burner. Basically, it's a combination of apparently the three of us weren't the only ones to think that the dual screen device was a uh, bit of an odd duck. I think it's also an issue that in the Windows world, it seems strange, the idea of having, you know, multiple for lack of a better word, distributions is really kind of what, you know, Windows 10X came down to. The concept of it wasn't that different than, you know, having both an Ubuntu and a Kubuntu, for example, where, you know, one is using the GNOME desktop interface and the other is using KDE. But that concept is a lot stranger and more off-putting to Windows-only users, which are an awful lot of the, you know, total Windows users there are. Yeah. And they're, uh, they're, they're folding a lot of the technology that they were working on for Windows 10X into Windows 10 proper, it's entirely possible that they'll still end up doing something else with that weird class of dual display device, but they'll just stop trying to call it a different operating system and, you know, just make it Windows 10 everywhere. I think that'll probably be a lot more comfortable to the actual user base they're trying to appeal to. Because we saw this with Windows 10 S as well, didn't we? That was originally its own thing, which was like a lockdown version of Windows where you could only install blessed apps from the Microsoft App Store. But then people decided they didn't want that. So then they turned it into S mode, which you could then turn off and just have full Windows 10. The only thing I'll disagree with there, Joe, is you made it like a, you know, first one thing happened and then the other thing happened. That I disagree with. Microsoft made Windows 10 S and immediately everybody was like, no, we don't want this. We never wanted this. Why <laughs> yeah. did you make this? Take this away. Yeah. But it kind of reminds me of like the the three times we've had ARM versions of, of Windows. And, you know, I thought maybe that's part of what Windows 10 X was, is that, you know, these dual screen devices are probably going to be ARM and, and need to be somehow delineated 
but the the devices they were targeting was the Microsoft Surface, which I don't think was ARM based. It gets really confusing when you're talking about Surface devices. You don't actually know what operating system or what CPU architecture you're talking about just because it says Microsoft Surface on the tin. Uh, the Surface Neo was the odd dual screen device we're talking about that was scheduled to run Windows 10X. And Neo had an Intel Lakefield processor. If I recall correctly, that's one of uh, Intel's attempts at, uh, you know, big little architecture, uh, much like uh, most of the uh, CPUs used for Android devices have. The Surface Duo, on the other hand, was running an Android operating system on an ARM processor. Meanwhile, there's also an ARM version of Windows 10, which is simply called Windows 10. Yeah, you know, with all these different, you know, Windows 10 S and X and so on, it's like you want to be able to tell by the name what it's going to be running. And I can understand why they want to say, oh, it's just Windows 10. But if it's if it can't just run everything Windows 10 can, it should be called something different. But adding one letter to the end just makes it more confusing, not less. And I think for the dual screen devices, the only ones I've seen that were interesting were things more like phones that had like one e-ink screen and then the regular screen. So that, you know, you could, say, read your text messages on the e-ink screen using almost no power without having to turn on the big screen if you didn't want it and, you know, not have touchscreen and so on. I think that kind of thing seemed more compelling for a reason to have two screens is that one of them is a very different technology and say does text only. That, I think, would be more interesting. And I could see some kind of laptop where that might be useful, too, where it just has an e-ink text screen that I use sometimes because if I'm just sitting there writing a document or something, I could get a lot more lifetime out of my laptop if it didn't have to run a backlight and an LCD screen. Or we can just wait for my all-time favorite Kickstarter to finally come to fruition, the iCase. Are y'all familiar with the iCase? No. No? It is literally an Android phone that you stuff your iPhone into (laughs) so that you see the iPhone screen on one side and the Android screen on the other. And this thing... shockingly never made it to market. Um, (laughs) The Kickstarter first started five or six years ago. It's actually still running. It's moved around all the crowdfunding platforms as, you know, (laughs) one and then the next one would get sick of it because it never shipped. They're still like, no, 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 no. You know, we've we've changed like eight different models of phone this is supposed to work with now, but it's totally going to happen, you guys. Uh, They made the most outstanding promo video with a rapping granny you've ever seen. So I want that, Alan. You keep your e-ink screen on your phone. I want the eye case. (laughs) The one I saw was uh, one of my friends from Europe had it uh, in Tokyo and he was showing it off. And then after I saw it, I was like, that was cool. And then the next person wanted to see it. When he pulled out of his pocket, he dropped it. It landed right on the corridor and spider with the screen. And he had to live with only the e-ink screen for the rest of the trip to Japan. Oh, no. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash two and a half to get started with $100 free credit and 60 days to use it. Linode offers cloud computing solutions in data centers all over the world. Whether it's scalable VMs with a choice of major distros or one-click apps and stacks, dedicated CPU and high RAM instances, block and object storage, or cloud firewalls and DDoS protection, Linode has everything you need for your personal projects right up to managed enterprise infrastructure. I recently moved my website over to Linode and it was really straightforward. And when I needed a mumble server for our late night Linux community meetups, spinning up a new VM for that was an absolute breeze. Everything's been running flawlessly since I set it up and I love the peace of mind I get from the automatic backups. So go to linode.com slash two and a half, 
get your $100 credit, and check out Linode's great cloud hosting services and first-class, always-available support. That's linode.com slash two and a half. Right, let's talk about Freenode and uh, what happened there. I talked about it a bit on Late Night Linux, and uh, I'm just a bit meh about this. It's IRC. It's an ancient technology that I just don't care about. But uh, Jim, you've been following this fairly closely. It involves a crown prince and an awful lot of politics. It might be something a little closer to a fresh prince than a crown prince. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the guy we're talking about is Andrew Lee. Uh, He is a Korean-American tech entrepreneur. He founded Private Internet Access, which he has since sold off. Since then, he co-founded Shells.com with his brother, Alex Lee. Yeah, and they've been going on a PR blitz, Shells.com. They've been on pretty much every Linux podcast uh, except mine, funnily <laughs> enough. Uh, I wonder why. If you have not yet seen the music video, well, I shouldn't say music video. If you haven't yet experienced the song that uh, the the Lee brothers commissioned to promote Shells.com, it's something. T.I., Jay Money, and Lil Flip are rapping simultaneously about the trap and about virtual desktops and Linux, <laughs> uh, you know, for a full-length song. It's it's really something. For some reason, they took the primary copy of the song down from YouTube this morning, but you can still find copies that uh, other people uploaded because it's an experience and it was worth them uploading it. You can also find, uh, and I just found this today, uh, there is a like five-minute segment of, I don't want to be mean, but let's face it, MMA has been Chael Sonnen going on and on about Shells.com, clearly having no idea what he's talking about, yelling confusedly at a mic while staring at a teleprompter that looks like it's about six feet above his head the entire time. And way off to one side for some reason. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, as much fun as it is to talk about rapping and trapping with T.I.J. Money and Lil Flip about uh, virtual desktop infrastructure, we eventually have to get back to the real story. It's really complicated to try to explain, especially to anybody who's not already just neck deep in IRC drama. But basically, Freenode is um, so it's the largest remaining IRC network, primarily devoted to supporting open source projects. And uh, it's been run by volunteers for a very long time. In 2017, Christelle Dalskier, whose name I'm probably butchering, uh, was the head of Freenode staff. And there was a conference that Freenode wanted to sponsor. And in order to sponsor this conference, at least what Dalskier and Lee told the rest of Freenode staff was that Freenode needed to incorporate in order to satisfy the paperwork needs of the conference. So Dalskier created a corporation called Freenode Limited, which less than six months later, she sold to Lee. Now, at the time, this was billed to staffers as, you know, all just administrivia. You don't need to worry about it. Nothing will change in day-to-day operation. And uh, Delscare also got a full-time position with private internet access, which allowed her more time to actually work on Freenode. So at this point, it's kind of similar to, you know, when Red Hat took over CentOS, somewhere in between administrivia and a necessary evil, and people will get more money and be able to spend more time on the project. All sounds good. Things actually went pretty much that way, and nobody was upset for about four years. But uh, this year in February, things started kind of going off the rails. Uh, first, a logo for Shells.com showed up uh, prominently on the front page of Freenode, which was a departure in a couple of ways. It's not that unusual for an open source project to advertise something proprietary, 
you know, in, in order to get some of that sweet, sweet money that open source isn't always all that great at harvesting. But up until this point, at least according to Freenode staff, there were no advertisements on the front page. Sponsorships were only noted on a specific sponsorship page, which also, if you go and look at it, everything there is, you know, just text. Like there's no graphic logos for the various companies that have sponsored Freenode. So, you know, this was kind of a, a big departure, but what made it worse from staff's perspective was the chief technical officer of Shells, Mark Carpeles, whose name I'm probably also butchering, but I don't really care because he's the guy that founded Mount Gox and oversaw it losing what is now worth $33.4 billion with a B dollars worth of Bitcoin. So staff was really unhappy about all of this. And um, when they asked Dolskier to explain, you know, what's going on? Why is there a new ad? Why is it for this company, you know, with this CTO that we don't like? Um, she was either unable or unwilling to explain and just resigned instead. Lee says that the staff harassed her into resignation, but, uh, you know, the 14 or so resignation letters out there from the staff disagree with that characterization. I don't really know which is correct. Um, Tom Wesley replaced her after her resignation. Then things really got nuts in April. Staffers made a blog post that was talking in very, very generic terms about the fact that there had been a change in leadership. It was not specific about who it was or what happened or whether they liked it or not. It just said, hey, there are some changes in leadership. Oh, and by the way, we're also, you know, looking to change to a new IRC demon to, you know, run the network on called Solanum. And uh, Lee just deleted it. He not only deleted it, he edited the website's history to make it look like it had never existed in the first place. Uh, shortly afterwards, uh, Freenode test network that was, you know, used to, to get ready for the shift to Solanum also got deleted just without discussion. It was just gone. Wesley, who, if you'll recall, had replaced Dolscare as the head of Freenode, uh, was the one who performed the shutdown but would not talk at all about why. Jones and several other parted staffers believe that Lee was behind it and had threatened Wesley with legal force to make him comply and shut up about it. And also apparently issued uh, gag orders to OFTC staff, which we have to digress again to explain all this because OFTC is another IRC network that had been instrumental in the development of Solanum, which has been through many forks and many name changes. Welcome to open, open source, y'all. All right. The next step up, Lee registers the channel Freenode-Board. He does not discuss that with staff. And uh, according to the staff, he did not have the authority to do that. To understand that, you have to know that on Freenode, if you have a single pound sign in front of your channel name, that means you're a primary channel and you're not allowed to establish that channel unless you are an actual listed authoritative person for the project, which Andrew Lee was not for Freenode. Shortly after that, an associate of Lee's named Shane Allen, a.k.a. Nirvana, started bragging about uh, turning Tomal, and uh, he tried to bribe an IRC user, Ariadne, with promises that uh, he would make her ops and free nodes so she could kick people. My gift to you, pal. So finally, on the 11th, Lee started issuing notices to the staff as a group and directly to individual staffers as well, and all these notices came from the board, which, you know, the staffers say there never was a Freenode board. And even now it's really just Andrew Lee. 
Andrew Lee is the board. The board is Andrew Lee. So then on the 12th, uh, he posted his own version of events. He claimed legal ownership of Freenode, uh, made a whole lot of complaints about the staff and how things had run and so on and so forth in a gist on GitHub, which is noticeably more detailed and also noticeably saltier than the mostly optimistic version of that that, you know, he currently has on the front page of freenode.net itself now that he has control of it. One of the things that he says pretty frequently in both the GIST and on the front page of Freenode is, uh, I found this rather telling, he talks about how much money he's given to Freenode over the years. There's this big sense that like, well, I gave you money and therefore now I own you. And it's like, well, you know, I don't think you understand what the word donate means, but uh, here we are. <laughs> wow. And I, I have questions about what you could spend that much money on as an IRC network. Yeah. So he's the only one who's actually said millions. Nobody is questioning the uh, the fact that he has donated money, services, whatever to Freenode. I get the impression he actually has been pretty instrumental in, you know, keeping the lights on. So anyway, we have to go back to this contract. The contract that was originally signed to incorporate Freenode so it could sponsor a conference. And then this theoretically nothing corporation that didn't really own anything because Dollscare never owned the infrastructure behind Freenode to begin with. And it was run by staffers, not employees. Anyway, all this got sold to Lee, and that wasn't supposed to mean anything, but now in 2021 is when he suddenly started demanding access to the actual domain and uh, you know, calling himself the board and booting people. So as you would expect for IRC drama, the whole thing is incredibly complicated, and uh, it doesn't help any that you're constantly trying to you know, translate between real names and ridiculous IRC nicks like, you know, Lee goes by Rasengan, which if you're not familiar with that, it's a special move from the Naruto anime. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're talking about this million dollar dispute, you know, in the frame of reference of a dude who goes by a Naruto anime power move nickname. It's it's difficult. It's messy. It's weird. But that's where we are. It reminds me of the Krebs story from the other week about the hacker court that the the ransomware people are in because they didn't pay their affiliates after they got all the money from the gas pipeline. <laughs> yeah. So at any rate, right now, uh, you know, it's a big nasty story. It's difficult to follow. I think the big takeaways for somebody looking on this thing to begin with is that although there are very, very detailed and weird stories coming from both sides, it's worth noting that Andrew Lee is the only one out there really telling Andrew Lee's side of the story versus, you know, a sudden mass exodus of like 20 to 30 staffers, at least 15 of whom have posted, you know, their own version of events and all of those match. Then you add that into the sense of entitlement you get, you know, reading Andrew talking about how much money he gave to the organization and now it's his and yeah, I, I just I don't think I can be Team Lee on this one, guys. Well, I was reserving judgment on this because there was a very organized effort to come out against him and start this Libera, Libera, whatever you want to call it, dot chat, the new network that everyone's moved over to now. I vote we ignore how it's spelled and just call it Libre chat. We learned how to say Libre. <laughs> okay, yeah, okay. So I was kind of reserving judgment until when people started posting in their old channels on Freenode, hey, we've moved over to Liberia or whatever, 
they started getting banned and the channels taken over by the new Freenode staff or whatever, that kind of reeks of being the baddies in all of this. Yeah, like when they when they yanked the ownership of all the Ubuntu channels because some of them had moved, not all of them. And then the one that they really shot themselves in the foot, they stole the channel for Atheme, the, the open source project that makes the NixServe and ChanServe software that they use on Freenode and has been very instrumental in developing the services and the, the IRC daemon itself. And so those guys have, uh, were going to stay and keep Freenode working. And then Andrew really just yanked their channel out from under them. And they're like, well, okay then. Well, he probably didn't mean to. Uh, it's entirely possible that he deliberately did some rather dull things, you know, banning people he shouldn't have. But a lot of the issue was that most of these bans were carried out by bots that were using very poorly thought out and untested regexes. And, mm-hmm. you know, the old joke, I had 99 problems, but then I used a regex and now I got 101. <laughs> yeah, so I think it just crawled every channel with Libera in the topic, got its ownership yanked. And that, once that took out uh, a bunch of actually large channels like Ubuntu and Atheme and, I don't know, there was a huge list, that really is going to make the difference. Um, although looking at it so far, the user count on Freenode has only gone down by about 5,000 or so. And the Libera is up to 17,000, I think, last I looked. It's gone down further than you think. Um, it was at 75,000 when I wrote my article, which is uh, the, the its peak, its recent peak was like 95,000. On the day I wrote the article, it was at 75. Uh, when Andrew Lee was bragging about how many people he'd retained, it was down to 65. Yeah, it's at 65 right this minute, uh, which is prime time-ish. So yeah, that's down about 10. But you also have to remember that um, that doesn't mean he actually retained that many people because somebody sure. literally just idling in the channels where everybody has been forcibly muted so that nobody can tell anybody to go to... Libre chat, uh, all those people count as people still connected to Freenode. So I think the damage is probably a lot more severe than Lee is willing to let on based on the kinds of things he said. I don't know this guy. I I don't. I don't really know his level of uh, technical knowledge, but I'm getting the impression it's probably not where you would expect somebody running, you know, a massive IRC network to be technically. So. I'm not sure he even quite understands how bad the damage is at this point. Another thing that that bugs me a lot, I personally have the impression, and this is this is opinion, this is not being stated as fact, but I have the impression of Lee as you know a uh, a preemptive mudflinger, right? Like you accuse the other guy of exactly the thing you're doing, and that decreases the value of being accused of the thing you're actually doing because you made the accusation first, right? And one of the complaints that he has made is that, uh, you know, everybody going to LibreChat is, uh, it's so anti-FOSS. And come on, man. I mean, you know, forking a project is the most FOSS thing ever. I mean, that is the very heart of free and open source software. <laughs> now, what is not FOSS is attempting to use leverage that you have over one project to kill off a fork, being immediately and actively super hostile and trying to kill it. It's not like we don't see that in the open source world, but when we do, 
we call it out. And that's the thing that Lee has been doing with all this, you know, forced muting and uh, bans and closing channels and everything else. You know, he's trying to make sure LibreChat can't get off the ground. That's the anti-FOSS move right there. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins and sign up for a seven-day free trial. I've just started my learning journey with CBT Nuggets, but I've already picked up tons of knowledge from the short and manageable videos in the Docker and Network Fundamentals courses. Their in-house trainers are active and certified IT professionals who add around 40 hours of new training to the course catalog each week, so you can always stay current and up-to-date. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, thank you everyone who supports us with Patreon and PayPal. It really is appreciated. You can go to 2.5admins.com slash support if you want to find out how to do that. And remember, for $5 or more per month, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan, show at 2.5admins.com is the best. So, Zvi, I think that's how you say it, Z-V-I, said this. I have a VPS running Ubuntu 18.04, Nginx, MySQL, and running WordPress, the latest version. The VPS has been compromised. I'm seeing strange directories show up in var www website one and website two, and someone is adding at include statements in the index.php and wordpresscontent.php. I'm not under the gun to get the situation fixed, or I'd blow the system away. I want to figure out how these files are being changed, i.e. which door I have left unlocked, etc. I'm not finding any unexplained SSH logins, any idea what else to look for. Now, my first question is, are you sure it's the latest version of WordPress? (laughs) And my follow-up question is, forget whether it's the latest version of WordPress or not, you installed some dodgy theme and probably a great big whole handful of plugins, didn't you? It's going to be one of those. Uh, There's going to be a vulnerability in theme, plugins, or both, and uh, that vulnerability is what's allowing your attacker to pop a web shell on your system. So far, everything you're describing that has been edited is uh, it's just files that the web server itself has access to. Uh, you haven't talked about anything changing under Etsy Apache, which would require root access. So this sounds like, you know, basically the lowest order of drive-by compromise. Uh, somebody is scanning for a, a fairly well-known vulnerability, probably in specifically, you know, the the theme or plugin that you have that contains that vulnerability, and they're exploiting that to get a shell. Once they got a shell, they're operating with the web server's, you know, privileges. So basically, they've got a shell as the Nginx user. And so they're changing files and they're sticking stuff in there. You'll also, uh, you really ought to check the database itself. The one other thing that you'll find pretty frequently is that they'll uh, they'll add new administrative users into your WP users table. Um, they will frequently stick, you know, headers and footers and all kinds of weird crap in your site. Frequently, it will be things that logged in users won't see. So if you're logged in as the site's admin, you'll be like, my site looks fine. But if you open up your site, you know, in a private or incognito window, you'll be like, whoa, what's with all this Viagra and Cialis and everything else all over my website? And that's what the rest of the world is seeing. 
So you got to watch out for all this crap. And uh, it boils down to you really do need to blow all this away. You may be able to figure out exactly, uh, you know, which plugin or which theme had the problem by checking your logs. Sometimes you can see, um, basically, you want to look in the error logs in the web server. Um, you know, you may see PHP errors that are associated to particular files that are a part of that plugin or theme, but you can't always narrow it down that way either. Um, a lot of it comes down to maybe rethinking your approach and maybe I'm being unfair. You know, maybe you installed one single theme and it was the most popular one on WordPress.com. You got no plugins, in which case I apologize, but we see this over and over and over and 99 times out of a hundred, that's what it comes down to. The one theme that you found that looked exactly like you wanted on like page 50 of the list at WordPress.com. And the 20 different plugins that are installed, you know, something in and amongst all that, it's got a problem. You also have to be careful when you commission somebody to theme your website for you, because that's the thing that when I first started seeing all this, you know, many years ago, it it really kind of messed with me that like themes were letting people into the website because you say theme and you think, well, it's just visual, right? You're just reskinning it. But in WordPress terms, a theme modifies the entire function of the site just as much as a plugin does. And in particular, you'll find lots of themes were coded by people who are relatively new to web design or possibly just not really that good at any part of it other than like what it looks like. And please don't lift up the hood and look underneath. You'll find things that could have been done in static HTML that are instead, you know, being run as, uh, you know, JavaScript functions and just a mess of potential vulnerabilities that somebody can exploit. Uh, another thing you might want to do is you might want to disable XML RPC. Even if it doesn't actually get compromised, there are tons and tons and tons of skitties out there. Uh, that's short for script kitty who are specifically targeting vulnerabilities in older WordPress versions, specifically in xmlrpc.php. And if you're asking, do I need xmlrpc.php? The answer is almost certainly no. There are a few really weird functions it has. The only one that I can remember off the top of my head is if you install the WordPress app on your phone and update your site using the mobile phone app, that wants to use xmlrpc.php. So that'll stop working if you nerf it. But our site is WordPress. Uh, my own blog is WordPress. I administer a ton of other WordPress sites. I always nuke xmlrpc.php, and I have never had a single problem from doing so. Yeah, I think the only other function it really has is the, the pingback thing, which is usually more trouble than it's worth anyway. Oh, yeah. Oh, we forgot the most important function of xmlrpc.php is the inordinate amount of resources it uses when uh, skitties start hammering it that can DOS your entire server. Yes. <laughs> which is why I kill it, because I'm not really worried about the security aspect of it directly, since I do keep automatic WordPress updates on and I do not install a bunch of third-party garbage. But yeah, that was the problem that I had is uh, hits to xmlrpc.php will bypass any caching mechanism that you have because they have to. Mm -hmm. And they use up quite a lot of uh, compute uh, and significant amounts of RAM and uh, sometimes disk bandwidth as well. So I had entire web servers that were locking up just because of brute force attempts on that script. Yeah, I have a, an Nginx deny rule on that. Uh, immediately so that because if I just removed the file, A, it might come back on an update, but also a 404 would result in doing a bunch of work and returning a page. Whereas an Nginx rule that just says if you're trying to access slash XMLRPC, you get a 403 with no content and just told the bugger off. All right. Well, we'd better get out of here then. 
Remember, you can send your questions in to show at 2.5admins.com. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. You can find me at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.